Hello, and welcome to the Pioneers Wanted podcast. This show is all about pioneers. We believe that the business world is stuck in a dangerous comfort zone of short-term thinking, living on past glories, and running from disruption. Clearly, that's bad for them. It's bad for their teams, and it's bad for society as a whole. We can do better. Pioneer philosophy is the antidote. Pioneers play a long game. They challenge the status quo, and they chase a better, more purposeful future for all of us. They're also great to hang around with and important to learn from. Now more than ever, we all need to be adopting pioneer philosophy as leaders in organisations both large and small. My name is Philip Clark, and in this episode I was joined by Sasha Celestial One, co-founder of food-sharing app Olio. We explored what it's like to have a burning hunger to build something meaningful, the difficulty in changing ingrained behaviours, and just how much your career choices can upset your parents. Enjoy the episode. My guest today has worn many hats. Growing up as a child of hippie entrepreneur parents, she learned early what it meant to be a micro-entrepreneur. As a mum, she came face-to-face with the structural challenges of childcare and the world of work. She's navigated the best of the business world as an analyst with Morgan Stanley, strategy consultant with McKinsey, and development lead at American Express. So what happens when you collide these worlds together, sprinkle in an ambitious friendship and an enormous social problem? You have the making of a great story. It's a story best owned and told by my guest today. Welcome to the show, Sasha Celestial One. Thank you for having me. So we first met about 15 years ago, and I made such an impression that I know you don't remember. Uh, the reason I wanted to uh, invite you onto the show. <laughs> uh, the reason I wanted to invite you on today is because you've crammed a huge amount of different experiences and different approaches to engaging the world and the world of business into a fairly short period of time. And I think that a combination of big corporate experience juxtaposed against the entrepreneurial endeavors you've been doing more recently put you in a really interesting place. I know that you talk with passion about social purpose, but also with empathy about how you can mobilize the potential and the expert skills you develop in a big business. So we'll talk today a lot about Olio, I'm sure, the world's first food sharing app and the amazing journey you've been on there. But this was also born out of other ventures and it was a very deliberate pursuit. I want to get into all of that with you too. But let's maybe start at the beginning. When you give us a sense of the forces and influences that shaped your early worldview and your outlook on the world? Well, I'm sure it's the same with anyone, but so stating the obvious somewhat, but my childhood and upbringing had a a massive impact in terms of what I decided I wanted to pursue or what success looked like to me, you know, as an individual, as I thought about who I wanted to be when I grew up. I had a very unusual childhood and brilliant, but absolutely chaotic as well. I'm the oldest of six children. Um, We also had uh, many, many, many foster kids living with us over the years, which meant we had a very full house. My parents separated when I was five or six years old, and my mom had to work really hard to, I guess, feed and clothe us all. She's um, an incredibly resourceful and creative person and definitely does not live by the rules of society. My parents were really big hippies. You know, they made up my last name. I was born in a barn. I've never been vaccinated. we followed the Grateful Dead around every year, you know, all the sort of stereotypical things you can think of, and then some. And that meant that as a kid, I immediately, I was never like one to blend into the background, right? 
And with that comes strength and courage. I think at quite a young age, um, I really did grow up thinking I could do anything I wanted. But at the same time, perversely, that's all I wanted to do actually was be normal and sort of not have the the eccentric experience that I did have as a child. And so I sort of looked at the world and said, okay, this is how my mom's done it. I don't want to do that. Obviously, as a grown woman now, I can see how many sacrifices she made and actually how brilliant she was in getting all of that done. But as a kid, I was I wanted to go to the mall and take my mom's credit card, which she definitely didn't have, and buy normal things. And so I, I, I quite deliberately decided that I was going to focus on on academics. Um, in school, it did come easy to me. My dad also really pushed me um, academically. And then I went on to study economics and have a very, very sort of traditional corporate um, young adult and uh, you know professional sort of trajectory, I think in direct response to the sort of chaos of my upbringing. So it's interesting as you, and I know you've told this story before, but it, it's interesting. We met in a professional business environment when you were with American Express, I think. But you talk about how part of that you know, can-do-anything upbringing kind of bred a micro-entrepreneurship, not by choice, but by necessity. And, and there's something yes. in you that was formed in that time. Yes, I had at least a dozen different micro-businesses I did as a kid. I learned how to do sort of little mini braids, and I would charge 25 cents a braid um, on the beach and braid people's hair all day long. We used to collect all of the aluminum pop cans, which are worth a nickel, made hundreds and hundreds of, of dollars just walking along the beach and the parks and the roads and picking up pop cans. You know, there's loads and loads of sort of different things that I did to, to earn my uh, my spending money, my pocket money. And, and a lot of that is sort of was mirroring the kinds of things that my mom did. So my mom used to take me along with her and we'd collect things that other people had thrown away. So specifically, we would go to houses that were being torn down because they'd been foreclosed on. And anything that could potentially be resold or fixed up was collected from toilet fixtures to wooden banisters from a stairwell. Um, And we had a year-round garage sale or yard sale at my mom's house with everything from plants that we had collected and and nursed back to health and repotted to, I remember at one point, and I I do have the photo somewhere and I'm going to have to find it, that there were at least three toilets sitting in my mom's front garden with a big for sale sign and being just completely mortified by this. My mom never cared and still doesn't care what anyone else thinks about her. So she had all different kinds of things. She used to go to the, uh, and I supported her with these, we would go to the end of season um, sale at the mall when shorts and tank tops were marked down to 25 cents, save them till next season, come April, lay them all out, charge five times the price. So that kind of just little that hustle I learned at a young age um, I learned to enjoy as well like it's really rewarding to see an opportunity and monetize it and then yeah I, I love that I, I, I get really excited about that I really like the sound of your mum and that you know you were upcycling before people called it upcycling and uh, and finding a way to make your way in the world which you know fundamentally is how the future gets built it's by people who seize it and go for it themselves so you had this really interesting upbringing, framed your expectation of yourself and of the world, but also, you know, you talk about being aware of the difference from other people. And so you went into this mainstream kind of business career and, you know, you were a really high achiever in that field. How did that go down? I don't think it necessarily like went down one way or another. It's It just was and it just is. Um, and I think, if anything, I might have had a, you know, a slight advantage in that I did have an interesting story. I'm a bit of a loud American sometimes. I have a lot of like, 
I like to make people laugh. You know, if you if you if you have a bit of personality and, and sort of sparkle, a bit tarnished now, twenty years on, but um, you know, people it, it makes it easy to form relationships with people and to maybe to stand out a bit. Um, and then if alongside that you've got a really, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. Um, you know, I don't do anything by half measures. I really love delivering high quality work and the sort of intellectual stimulation of, of, of problem solving and then the operational execution of, of actually going through and, you know, solving that problem. All of that stuff is, are things I truly enjoy. So not only do, so me, I don't want to say that it made it easy, but I didn't struggle to be a high performer in, um, in school or, or in the jobs that I've had since then. If what I struggled with wasn't about performance, um, what I struggled with was a gap between. It was feeling like I was on some sort of, you know, path that I maybe I hadn't chosen or that I'd sort of landed on by default, and that might not be authentic. And so that was that's a different kind of struggle than, well, am I good enough for this job? Or you know, I, that that I never questioned. Interesting. Okay. And so at some point there was. Um... A quickening, I suppose, a sense where, where some of those yep. things you articulated there came to a head, and you, you had certain directions and options, perhaps within your professional blue chip career, uh, and there were other more entrepreneurial options. Tell us how that came about, and, and you know why you took the direction that you took. So after five or so years at American Express, I got pregnant and I was on maternity leave, and during that time. I, there was a reorganization, a few things happened that came together all at once um, to provide that external trigger, which really did enable me to make a choice that put me on a different path where I've been going ever since. My department, I was in the international business development department and I, my job required a lot of travel and there was a reorganization while I was away and I was lucky enough to get promoted, yay, but uh, my new role was going to require even more travel and I could not for the life of me figure out how I would manage that with a newborn child. And I'd already been stressed out about going back in the capacity of my previous role, but to take on even more responsibility and time away from home, it just wasn't going to work for me, which gave me the opportunity to opt for redundancy, which is a massive blessing because I did the maths and I realized that if I cut my living expenditures in half, which I could do because there were a lot of things that I didn't need to spend money on that I was wasting, frankly, my money on. If I really just dialed back to sort of the necessities, and don't get me wrong, like I still lived in central London, et cetera, but I dialed back um, that I could make my redundancy package to last me for a couple of years. And that was just figuring that out was one of the most freeing moments of my entire life that I can remember. And um, having feeling like I... I, I wasn't going to find myself in a sort of financially scary situation in, for a long time. And also at that point, my CV was, you know, I had really spent over, you know, 15 years bulletproofing my CV with accomplishments. That I knew that I could go out and get a job if I needed to. So that, that security combined with some financial flexibility collided with um, a real need that I was experiencing whilst on maternity leave um, as an expat in London and sort of didn't have a support system around me, I really struggled to, I guess I, what, I, what I really needed was someone to look after my kid for a few hours while I took a nap. Um, and I, you know, you can't really get a babysitter during the middle of the day and they're expensive. And I realized that at the gym, my, at my local gym, they had a crash and that 
I was using the crash, which was free with my gym membership every day. And yes, I was doing some exercise, but I was also having a coffee and reading a book and that there were lots of other parents doing the same thing. And I started talking to people and I got the idea for a pay-as-you-go high street crash for parents who want flexible childcare without the commitment of a particular routine in a nursery setting. They still want this access to the same level of um, high quality childcare. And yeah, that was the genesis of a business called My Crash, which we really only six short months later, I opened with two of my girlfriends who were also had young children. We took the crash manager from the gym. So he already knew all the local parents and he helped us set up My Crash. And that experience was one of immense fulfillment and joy and creativity and ups and downs in terms of, you know, it's scary sort of deciding to a lot of, we had to completely refit out a property. I've never had a commercial lease before. Never knew anything about sort of the early years, you know, all of the regulatory and other complications that go alongside the childcare sort of industry or business as you want to call it. So we basically sort of threw ourselves in the deep end And about nine months after we opened, we had a fully packed waitlist business operating at profit. And um, and it became, that was a choice at that point. We could either think about expanding. We started looking at other properties. You know, if we had a portfolio of these crashes, you know, it would actually be quite handsome business. Or we could say, you know what, it's going to provide some free childcare for all three of us. And it's some nice sort of um, passive income. And maybe I want to do something that has the opportunity to have more impact. And by the way, parents are a very difficult customer segment to go after. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> it was, I was literally just exhausted and babied out by the time I got to that point. And um, I'll pause there, but that was the when I started thinking I wanted to do something bigger, more scalable and, and with higher impact. So really interesting. So you're, you, you'd earned yourself essentially this window through your corporate career, getting the, the package from Amex. You've got this window to, in a way, go back to your roots a little bit or to scratch that entrepreneurial itch or, or, or express the capability that you'd already developed early. And clearly you enjoyed playing into that space again. And you talk about it as a quite a formative time in terms of, you know, my experience is that in large corporates, you're quite insulated from a lot of the world because there are different people who do that. So just having to become an expert in all sorts of things, handling difficult parents, managing the legislation, fitting out a commercial environment is a very raw and real aspect to entrepreneurship when you're a founder. So so you did that and it worked and it was successful. But as you say, it's a people-based business and scalability is difficult. So you got to a point where you were reflecting and with your partners in the business reflecting. There was a big aha at some point. Tell us about that. Yeah. So after we decided, well, if you, we're still sort of deciding if we wanted to sort of scale my crash, we had, you know, mothers and some fathers from all over the country reaching out to us to say, Oh my God, we need this. I want to set this up. You know, it was a real idea that is something maybe we could franchise, et cetera. But at that time, I, like I said, I was really rather babied out and I wanted to do something more scalable. And one of my closest friends, Tessa, who I'd known since, you know, for well over 10 years, we've been to business school together and very close friends here in London. She was at a similar crossroads in her career. And we had previously actually done an entrepreneurial adventure together. I won't go into the details before my crash. And we knew that we really loved working together and that we were very compatible and very aligned. 
And we decided to sort of take a few months to proactively look for an idea that we could execute together. And what we were trying to solve for was an environmental problem that we could tackle at scale, leveraging technology. And that's because for various reasons, she's is like sort of a hardcore, don't let anything go to waste. Let's protect our precious planet person as I am. You know, she grew up on a farm, et cetera. And we'd always been sort of kindred spirits in that regard. And we did a very sort of top-down management consulting type of analysis of opportunities. You know, we were really looking at B2B sort of recycling waste streams to see if there were any opportunities. I recently spoke to someone a few days ago who's starting a business with waste stream feathers from the poultry industry and turning into packaging. So we sort of were like in that type of mind stream, you know, like are there fingernails that we can find en masse and turn them into something new or, you know, something like that. Needless to say, we we actually didn't discover anything that we thought we could pursue or we could bring value or that we could disrupt. But during that search process, Tessa had an individual experience when she was moving house. She'd actually been living in Switzerland. She was moving back to the UK. And on moving day, she had some sort of non-perishable food, cabbage, sweet potatoes, perishable, but you know, would last for weeks and weeks. And then she assumed she'd be able to pack them. And the removal men said, absolutely not. You can't pack any food. She wasn't going to sort of just leave them in her corporate flat. So she went out on the street with her two tiny kids in the middle of winter and tried to find someone who might want her um, food. And, and she couldn't, and she had a you know a little meltdown, really, and ended up smuggling the food in her packing boxes anyway, not committing some crime, I'm sure. But that was a real pain point for her. And we had dismissed the idea early on of a sort of peer-to-peer sort of marketplace for waste streams for a variety of reasons. But she, when she had that experience, actually, the pain point was so strong and visceral for her. You know, she really did have the, geez, like, this is crazy. There's someone nearby who wants this food. Like, can I just give it to them? And when she told me that story, we both had, or her aha moment became my aha moment. And within minutes, we had said, that's it. This is what we have to do. There's a gap in the market for this. But it wasn't really, we named, you know, we named the company within the hour. But what really caused us to go from having previously dismissed that idea to embracing and realizing it was what our, frankly, our destiny was going to become was just quickly doing some research on the scale of food waste, which neither of us had any clue about because we don't waste food. And because you hear about food shortages for so many people, it had not occurred to us. And thus we hadn't recognized the size of the problem and the size of the opportunity, which is that $1.2 trillion of food goes to waste every year. That is well over a third of all food that's produced. And it's not wasted in restaurants and supermarkets. Yes, a little bit is. It's wasted in our homes. So excluding, you know, post farm gate, over 70% of food waste in the UK takes place in our own homes at the family level. And it's not eggshells and banana peels. It is for the most part, perfectly good edible food that should have been eaten. And then to top that off, we had no idea how much it contributed to the climate crisis you know, if food waste were a country, it'd be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases. And yeah, so we kept learning more and more. And that just really validated that this is a huge problem that's actually really easy to solve. And that was it. That was the beginning of Olio. That was um, in February 2015. 
and we gave ourselves one year because we both were the primary breadwinners. We're both in our, you know, sort of late thirties, both relatively risk averse. We both put some money in from our savings and we gave ourselves one year to get enough traction to justify not returning to the traditional workforce. And that was five years ago. What I love about that story is I love the the fact that there was you know, all of the, the strong business skills that you brought to it, the, the, the analysis, the, the analytical work. You were chasing a big question and you stumbled across it with Tessa doing her crazy lady giving out feed in the street impression. And, yeah. and yet you still, and you wanted to grow a scale response to a scale problem and you wanted to use technology to do it. But then the reality of that challenge and the disconnect between your own experience and the global problem, there was enough force in that to propel you through what must have been a, a sense of caution that person-to-person businesses, these two-sided models, are incredibly hard to scale. So what wh- what is it that you managed to do in that year where you were trying to prove to yourselves you could do it? Wh- what did you manage to do? What was the key to your success? I mean, you're absolutely right. We had, I mean, I felt like I had like two completely different competing personalities in the beginning. One of them, which said, this is a massive problem that mobile technology can help solve. You just got to start small and grow. And the other one that said, like, there's no way in hell you'll ever get enough traction to even make a dent into this problem. And because it's a two-sided marketplace for low value perishable items, right? So but what we so what so even though we were we were in our hearts convinced we also everyone around us I mean for the most part everyone around us thought we were crazy, especially our partners at the time. Luckily, um, the come full circle. But we forced ourselves in a rather disciplined way to follow best practice. So first thing we did is some market research to validate whether or not this was something other people would be interested in. Put together a survey monkey survey and posted in all of so I live in North London in Crouch End, and we knew obviously we had to pick a geographical area to pilot in because you know people aren't gonna go all the way across London or to different cities to pick up a few spare bananas, right? We needed a defined geographical yeah. place to see if we could get the flywheel spinning in that area so that there was liquidity in the marketplace, which is effectively Oleo is. So we posted in all the local Facebook groups and next door and got I can't remember, but close to 400 sort of local people to fill out this survey. And the results showed that 35% of people said they felt physically pained when they throw away food that is or recently was edible. And I remember that 93% of people said that they would be willing to walk up to 15 minutes away to get homegrown fruit or red from a neighbor. And so we, we of course, I remember the, the market research points that said us, yes, we should do Olio. I can't remember the ones. That, uh, there were some that were quite discouraging. But <laughs> long story short is that we were ready to go after that. But then you know, we're faced with skepticism from a lot of people still that said, well, of course, I'm going to say that. But whether I actually do it is a different thing. So we said, all right, let's do a proof of concept. And of the people, we looked at everyone who filled out the survey. And we identified 12 people who said they really wanted Oleo to happen and that sort of lived based on their postcode, all within a 15-minute walk of each other. And we recruited them to take part in a two-week proof of concept, which was a WhatsApp group. And we also put one local business in. And the objective was simply to see what kind of transactional activity, what kind of sharing would take place during those two weeks. And within minutes of the group being set up, someone shared a bag of shallots, which is very crouch-end. Um, and two people said, I'll have them. It is. And we just sat back and we watched. Obviously, we burst into tears um, at that first share, but we sat back and watched. And those 12 people had 26 neighbor to neighbor shares during the two weeks. 
which was good. We were really excited. And we debriefed with everyone afterwards. And they said, you've got to build this. It's amazing. It felt good. I got such a rush from sharing. I got such a rush from rescuing. I met people that I've been friends with on social media for ages, but I've never met in person. I had tea with a neighbor. You know, we just have a really positive response. But they also said, it literally doesn't need to be much better than a WhatsApp group. And by the way, I'd like to help. And those were two key insights for us that we got very early that we wouldn't have anticipated. One, we were able to strip back loads of features from our MVP, and which meant we brought it to market much faster in time for peak summer, which is when people are out and about and they've got gardens, et cetera. And two, we realized that, hey, wait a minute, we don't have to do this all on our own. People want to help. And grassroots volunteers have been at the heart of our acquisition, our user acquisition and our sort of network growth strategy since literally that second. We've now had over 50,000 people reach out to volunteer to grow their own food sharing networks. And we've seen, I mean, we can talk more about where we are today later, but through empowering individuals to create the sharing community that they want, that they will benefit from in their immediate neighborhood, we've been able to grow for free, you know, with the exception of printing flyers and printing posters and things like that. Five months it was from a corporation to launch in the app store. And we had at that point, 2,200 people who had pre-registered and we got the, we got people to pre-register by being very, very old fashioned and scrappy standing on the street corner in our pilot area with a clipboard shouting, do you hate food waste? Really? Okay. Come here. Or, um, and no, for real. And we hand delivered 10,000 letters through people's letterbox saying, Hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Please come and pre-register. So we had a, a ready-made sort of base of people who had expressed interest, um, and we had 30 volunteers who had agreed to help us basically when people shared, if no one collected, we could dispatch yeah. a volunteer to go collect. And then and the vice versa, when people weren't sharing in a particular area, they had already said that they would share like, you know, share something every four days for the next 20 days, basically to, to inject supply and demand to get the flywheel spinning in, our, in the pilot area. Now, I found out about Olio from a member of my team, a colleague of mine, who came in and started ranting about it. And, um, and it, it, I hope in a good it, way. In, no, in, a, in a very good way. He was very grateful. And he was a real advocate. And, and it struck me at the time that there was something of the zeitgeist about what you were doing. There was something around it being the right time for a quite a broad community and quite a number of different segments for whom there were ecological drivers, there were community drivers, there was a mechanism for doing the right thing and being part of a movement that demonstrated it was doing the right thing. So these weren't passive consumers of a marketplace. These were advocates coming together. And that feels like something quite explosive. Did it feel like that from the inside? Yes, it did. It, it From day one, we've just had those sort of the net promoters who are sort of off the charts volunteering to spread the word or do our social media for free or to look at our legals for free or to help us make a business plan for free or people really from all walks of life have stepped forward to say, this is the kind of world I want to live in where we do something that is just so basic and so simple as sharing. Olio is modernizing something that is a bit lost, but is fundamental to how our species has evolved and survived and thrived which is the efficient redistribution of resources, scarce resources with, within your tribe. And the levels of waste that have accumulated in society in recent years, I think, have been left a lot of people with a really 
quite literally a bad taste in their mouth. And so a simple people-powered tool has been really well received. I think it was the right time from a technology perspective as well in terms of people just getting so sharing economy and people just really used to notifications and you know GPS and all of the kind of nuts and bolts of, of the app that make Oleo work. People are just so familiar with. So the ingredients were there and you made something from it. Yeah. I mean, we've gone on to do some really innovative stuff, um, but the core neighbor-to-neighbor sharing element is pretty straightforward. Um, it's just, yeah, sort of right time, right place. But I also think, I mean, to that sort of underestimates or underplay, downplays just how much thought and attention and hard work we put into every aspect of Oleo. So it would be really easy to have named Oleo, you know, the free food exchange network. You know, Oleo is meant to be something that's aspirational, something that's a brand that we can hang our hat on and differentiate ourselves from. It would have been really easy not to let the community sort of go into a downward spiral where people are unfriendly and no-shows are the norm and people are demanding the way a lot of other sort of platforms where you can advertise things are. But we've been, since the day one, we said a friendliness of our community is going to differentiate us. And we've been really rigorous about our guidelines and enforcing that. So part of it is um, right time, right place. A lot of it is let's not take any chances and do everything we humanly can with the resources available to us to make sure that we're set up for success. I think that's really interesting. So there's an excellence built into your model and an aspiration built into your model. And we've talked you know, about kind of the bottom-up elements and how the network grew and how you intervened in the market to make sure the market worked and how you managed as best you could this, this thing that was growing beyond you. But I know that you talk about, and, and the way you originated the business, scalability was always built into your thinking and was always built into your model. Does that come from the fact that how clear is your your north star how clear is your your overarching intent do you have a sense of this audacious goal that you're chasing we we do and it's a billion people using oleo on a weekly i would add basis to share the our most precious resources and that's a big hairy audacious goal but yeah. that's because if we don't aim that high we're not going to have the impact that we want and if we do aim that high we're starting to talk about a meaningful mitigation to the worst effects of the climate crisis in terms of carbon emissions avoided. And so it was always the idea that Oleo could be used by anyone, anywhere, because it's user-generated content. So people are using it in different languages all over the planet. We recently had our 54th market last week or the week before, where food sharing has successfully taken place between neighbors. And that's all down to um, basically having a volunteer pathway that is global in nature. So people can self-service and spread the word online or by printing out flyers or posters and distributing them to you know people in their apartment block or to local cafes and local, you know, we've tried to make it as self-service and open source as possible. So anyone anywhere can, can take their Oleo kit and sort of run with it. And it's all about impact. Um, so our commercial objectives, um, we're not a charity. You know, we're a private limited company. We have investors um, who at some point in time certainly expect a handsome commercial return on their investment. But our, our commercial sort of value and our social and environmental value are directly in lockstep. And it's just all about scale. So the more that is shared through Olio that doesn't go to waste has a direct impact immediately because it's not going to landfill, obviously. And, you know, food, when it goes to landfill, decomposes without access to oxygen and converts into methane, which is a very dangerous um, gas. Um, 
But it's also about then when people consume something that they find on Olio that they didn't buy new, we're also displacing and shrinking the primary sort of marketplace. And the reality is that we make too much crap. We have too much food. We could feed everyone you know, multiple times over. So we need to stop making so much because the process of making, the process of packaging, all of that, the opportunity cost combined with the direct cost is, is unsustainable. And we are consuming the earth's resources faster than we can replenish them. You know, very recently was Earth Overshoot Day, um, which is the day in the year where every day after we're, is net depletive to the earth's resources. So we're on this, um, I don't want to call it exciting, but one of the other things that really motivated us about solving the problem of food waste versus some other problems which are really wooly and are more difficult potentially to solve. I mean, this is a massive problem. This, I mean, I'm not trying to say that it's easy, but it's an in our lifetime problem that has to be solved. So if you look at population growth, and if you look at lots of different factors, like we've got to figure this out like now. And so that means that the market is looking for solutions. And so that meant that the timing was good. This is a good time to be trying to solve food waste. A lot of people are looking at it. So you you started with the person-to-person platform and you built out this network of, as we described, yes. advocates and, and you had a ripple effect there. Commercially, though, you don't get income from that part of the platform, I understand. Many of our, our listeners, I'm sure, will know earlier, but give us a sense of how the commercial side of the business works. So the way we've monetized to date, and there will be additional monetization opportunities later, but our focus has been on what we call the Food Waste Heroes program. Food Waste Heroes, which we um, launched in 2017, originally it was a supply hack in that it was um, demand has always been really amazing. So three-fourths of all listings, wherever you are, anywhere in the world, will get picked up. Now, if you're in London and it's a higher, like a more attractive listing, it's even higher. It's 85, 90, 90, you know, and they would get multiple requests. But the demand side of our marketplace has always been really strong. Ironically, the supply side, given that there's so much food going to waste, has been more challenging. Now, persuading the average everyday person that they should add a half a head of broccoli to an app and have a stranger come around and pick it up is a work in progress, right? And we have made significant inroads there, but we weren't able to get the supply as fast as we needed. So we started thinking about surplus food from businesses, specifically surplus food from businesses that's not collected from the charitable sector because it's the wrong type of food or the charities can't collect it because the business closes too late or for whatever reason. And, you know, if all the charities took all the surplus food they could from the retail sector, there'd still be 80% left over that's going to waste. There's just a lot of high quality food that just had a price tag on it you know, a few hours ago that was going to waste every day because it had a use-by on it that day. So with this Food Waste Heroes program, recruits volunteers, trains them, and then matches them with businesses who've got surplus food that they don't want to go to waste, that they want to feed the oleo community. And we sort of manage and operate that. We have over 10,000 food safety trained food waste heroes, and we charge our clients a collection fee per collection in order for us to make sure that that food is safely collected and redistributed. I'm really proud of the Food Waste Heroes program, if I'm honest. It's really grown. We've got, you know, a team of 12, 13, 14 people sort of working on it full time. We've got some really incredible partners that we've scaled up with, including, and we're working through uh, supermarkets like Tesco, um, specialty supermarkets like Planet Organic, Predamonje and Costa, and also working with contract caterers because 
There's, you know, food that's served for breakfast and lunch to office employees, less so right now, but they'll be back Monday. That goes to waste. So there's a lot of a lot of food that can be rescued. So it's a revenue hack, right? Because we're getting money for it. It's a supply hack because it's injecting very high quality free food into a marketplace. It's an acquisition hack because people hear about free food on Oleo and we they download it. It's not that hard of a sell. I don't need to you know, pay someone a referral fee to get their friend to come join Oleo. They just have to tell them they got lunch for free and their friend joins up as, as your sort of <laughs> teammate probably did. Um, it's a marketing hack because the participating businesses want to talk to their employees and their customers about the good that they're doing by redistributing this food. So that also drives um, awareness about Oleo. And it's a, a defensibility hack because we have a really robust and innovative program to facilitate that safe redistribution of the food that took a very long time and a lot of hard work to put into place with the blessing and approval of environmental health officers and our insurers to ensure, you know, to make sure that it's all done in a safe and robust way. So if someone wanted to sort of copy that element of our business, it would I wish them luck because actually it's really quite complicated and it works really well. We've invested a lot to make that happen. And that goes back to this idea of you're building an excellent business. You're not just facilitating a socially useful exchange. Yes. Tess and I are both card-carrying capitalists. It doesn't mean that we don't have hearts and we don't care about impact. Our professional experience is in building businesses. And we're taking that knowledge and experience and bringing it to Olio. And we're doing something that we know in our hearts, making the world better with every listing, every single day, every person that joins. But the more that we can commercialize, I mean, all of the income we receive from the Food Waste Heroes program, we plow back into making Oleo better to reach more people, to rescue more food so we can grow faster and be more in control of our own destiny as well. And I, and I think that's the sweet spot. And I think we're going to see more and more sort of these hybrid models where whether it's the rise in social enterprises or it's B Corps or whatnot, where profit with purpose is considered, you know, the place to be. It's the, if, if, you're, if you're doing profit without purpose, I guess the question has to be why, right? Because wouldn't it always be better to be doing some profit with purpose? Absolutely. And, and an awful lot of the people that we're interviewing in season one, whether it was Paul who set up Ella's Kitchen, whether it was Simon who set up Karma Cola, that this, this triple bottom line and this purpose, which, which recognizes the tools of business have a really important role to play. Let's use them to their full, but let's not use them in a, with a short-term mindset. Let's look to solve big problems for the long term. It's really inspiring. It's exciting. It's why it's fun for me to get to interview people like you. Now, one of the other things is that pioneers tend to be relentless optimists. And I know you you would probably describe yourself that same way, uh, which is always difficult when I say, tell me about the, the biggest challenges. Tell me about the single biggest hurdles you had to address. But if you are happy to go there, what was the, the biggest thing you had to grapple with and overcome? Um, Tess and I are definitely relentless optimists. Um, and I think we view everything a bit through rose-colored glasses. But I there's so many things that we have tried and had to abandon because they've just fallen completely flat. And I'm talking about what has worked, but we had this big idea that people would be able to raise money for charity by requesting donations and directing sort of like a just giving for your things, right? I can declutter my house, pick the charity of my choice, raise a lot of money for that charity and then at the same time, you know, Oleo would take a share of that to help fund our operations. And we built a lot of features and functionality around all of this. 
in hindsight, we did not nearly enough market research on this, or there's a disconnect. We didn't do the proof of concept. There's a different disconnect between what people say they want to do and what they actually do. But that was a feature that I think we raised as our second round on um, the potential of that feature. And it did, it really didn't go anywhere. Within a matter of weeks, it was obvious. You know, maybe we raised a thousand pounds or something for charity, but what we were picturing happening, we, we thought it would unlock and motivate a whole new group of people to to want to raise money through charity through decluttering. They're they're not their food, but they're their other household items. Yep. And that was incredibly disappointing because then you're sort of back to the drawing board. So I think the frustration, the ongoing frustration for for us has been people love the idea of Olio. Okay. We've been really lucky to have so much press written about us. We have this great organic word of mouth that's happening, but to have the impact that the world literally needs us to have, like we all need to start living in more in a sharing way and less in a wasting way. And for some reason, everyone thinks they don't waste any food, even though it's not true. And they don't think that there's a sort of a gap in their behavior. I'm talking about the mainstream here, early adopters aside, but getting the sort of mainstream person to recognize their waste as a problem and then to turn that into action that they're sort of committed to is a massive, massive challenge, which we have not been able to crack. And and I don't know how we're going to be able to crack that. So doesn't mean we don't have strong numbers, but we haven't seen the explosive adoption of this behavior, which is one of many quite literally planet-saving behaviors that we need. The reason I get discouraged sometimes is because there is, for many people, the expressed will or intention, but then a gap between that and execution. And then I start to get just depressed about where we're headed as a society, about our ability to course correct with every passing day, the path, the trajectory that we're on from an environmental perspective, and keep staying optimistic, keeping hope alive, banging this the same drum with his, not with the same passion, but because um, that's obviously there and hasn't gone anywhere. Um, and it's sometimes in, in, in the face of very clearly disappointing data can be, can be hard. And I think that's probably the same, that up and down roller coaster. You'll hear entrepreneurs describe over and over and over where you get just so excited that you've got something, that's something that is going to just break through and transform overnight. And then it doesn't, and you need to go back to the drawing board. So that's a long-winded that was quite long-winded response, I'm aware. So one of the things that I'm really excited about, it's optimists that build the future. And we're all about building the future. We think big businesses spend most of their time in the comfort zone of the way things are today. But optimists challenge the status quo, even against you know overwhelming odds. And that's the kind of challenge that you describe in, in an existential challenge that you describe that you're chasing. I'm excited about the fact that you managed to find investors who want to accelerate you on that journey. Tell me more about kind of that experience and the kind of investors that pursue this kind of vision with you. We we have. We have been successful in fundraising. It doesn't mean it's been easy, but we have raised four rounds, raised just over 11 million pounds. It's helped us to build a team of nearly 30 people and to do everything that we've done. And there's different things about Olio that appeals to different investors. We've got three types of investors. We have traditional venture capital investors, including Excel, who's led three out of our four rounds, and Octopus. And they're looking, I think, at an experienced team. You know, Tessa and I 
do have quite a lot of experience between us. Um, so we're a safe pair of hands, I think, which especially in the beginning went a long way. Um, and they're also looking at the total market opportunity, which is huge, right? 1.3% of the GDP of the United States is food waste, right? So there's a lot of opportunity and value to unlock. Um, so that sort of got our foot in the door. Also, I think we spent a lot of time talking and articulating our vision and the potential. And the more you do it, the better you get, right? So I like to do podcasts. I like to speak on panels. I like to put, you know do presentations. And not just because it helps to spread the word about Olio, but um, and I'm not, not saying this has been a particularly articulate recording, but you do get better at telling your story and bringing people on that journey and making people want to, investors included, um, sort of get on board that train. We also have impact investors. Those are investors who are very aware of, uh, who are equally care about the social and environmental impact as well as the commercial impact. And, and those funds have... Sh- fund um, investment into their funds from individuals or other funds that also care about this. So it is, if, if you've, if you've got a really strong social or environmental, you know, impact, there are, it's small, but there are plenty of sort of smaller funds out there who focus on that. And we have angel investors, um, you exited entrepreneurs who, who I guess also believe in the size of the potential. I think um, as a female founded team, with a predominantly female product at this stage, when two thirds of our users are women, you know, pitching to male investors at times has been eye opening. Who haven't necessarily understood, you know, maybe they don't participate in decisions in the household kitchen, and so this is just a completely foreign concept to them. And they're like, well, why wouldn't you just go out and buy some more bananas? Um, or I'll have to ask my cleaner about that. Or it's has been often a bit weird. I'm, I'm um, and then also go on. I'm getting to enjoy at this point your eye rolls, which listeners won't get to enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I mean, it's a. I think I think you need to know who your audience is, and you need to tailor your story. You know, their venture capital pitch decks did not include anything about our environmental impact. If they did, it was a footnote, right? That's not. If anything, that's going to make them think that we're not as focused on commercial outcomes. So you need to know what your story is and tailor it to your audience. And for us, actually, it really helped to find female investors with check writing capabilities. It was easier for them to understand what we were trying to do and why it was so important. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but there's some flavor for how it's gone. I just would add that a lot of people underestimate how time intensive fundraising is. It's a full-time job. We basically do it year round, um, especially or mostly Tessa as the CEO. We don't just start fundraising six months before we're about to run out of cash. We have hundreds of ongoing conversations at a time. And many of those investors have said, sorry, we don't invest until series C or B stage, but we formed the relationship when we were at pre-seed and we kept in touch and they've seen us grow. And it's been an opportunity for them to really be familiar with us so that when the time comes right at our stage, that's appropriate for their you know, funding stage, we've already got a good network. Well, so why don't we round it out? We've talked a lot about what you've put into the organization, what you've put into the community, what you've put into the business. Was there a moment when it dawned on you that you'd achieved something really awesome? Was there a moment when you suddenly went, oh, that's cool? Well, the shallots and the proof of concept was a moment, but the one that then sticks in my mind is when we made the app available globally a year and a half or so after we launched, we, we sort of turned it on the night before and I woke up in the morning. I was happened to be in Barcelona for work and a lemon tart had been shared successfully in Seattle that morning. There were only six people who had downloaded the app in Seattle. One of them added a lemon tart and two other people requested it. 
And that was a, holy cow, wow. It only took a half a dozen people on the other side of the planet, and that was enough network density to facilitate food sharing. And the idea that if we could just get six people in every village, every city, and every, you know, six people everywhere, it just really, I think it gave a massive sort of um, boost to the idea that if we could just spread the word enough, we could really make this happen at scale. So that was a nice moment. Sasha, you know that I think Olio is really cool, and I really love your mission. Thank Uh, you. I believe in it myself. I hear it from the people in my team who love what you're doing and enjoy being part of it. More than that, I love the way that you're you're demonstrating the power of great business acumen to seize an issue that matters and using technology to scale it. And this is the way we're going to solve these problems together, I think. If people want to find out more about Olio, where should they look? Well, in the App Store or on Google Play, you can obviously download the app for free. And once you do that, we will um, send you all kinds of lovely emails and tell you more about Olio. Our website address is olioex.com. That was a lot cheaper than olio.com. So it stands for Olio Exchange. And we've got our founding story and links to press articles and testimonials from users and all kinds of lovely stuff there, as well as if anyone wants to learn about how they might be able to volunteer or spread the word. And then the most important thing I would say, though, is to try and experience the magic of Olio for yourself. If you do care, if you think we're on to something, if you think that you want to live in a world where we do share and we don't waste, then take that little leap of faith and have a look in your kitchen or anywhere, really, and see if there's something that's gathering dust that would be better off in the hands of someone else nearby. And just give it a go. It's really fun. Awesome. Congratulations on your success. Um, I look forward to everything you've got in store for the future. Thank you so much for joining me today on Pioneers Wanted. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. Well, I really enjoyed uh, recording that episode with Sasha. She's in real demand, both as they scaled the business at Olio, but also as a voice of the social enterprise movement more generally. Uh, I really enjoyed the contrast that she framed between the romantic startup story that we so often get fed and the gritty reality of applying big business thinking to solve some of these enormous social challenges. If you want to follow Sasha on Twitter, she's at SashaN8, that's at S-A-A-S-H-A-N-8. The business is at Olio underscore E-X, and uh, do go and download their app and play your part in the food sharing revolution. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like, subscribe, and review us. Pioneers Wanted is produced by Hunch, the strategic innovation practice and the home of pioneer leadership. Check us out at brillianthunch.com.